Well, good morning. I am so excited to be up here again with you. Uh, it's been really fun the last couple of months, um, not just because Anne and Jared are gone and we just get to do whatever we want as a staff, but uh, just being able to speak from the front. And I wanted to formally thank Anne and Jared because, you know, I've been in other churches and a lot of uh, lead pastors don't share their platform as generously as Ann and Jared do. And that's a very intentional thing on their part. And so thank you so much for entrusting us uh, with the word of God and to be able to share as a team uh, what we hear him saying. So this morning, I was, I was thinking about this parable of forgiveness. And I realized as I was thinking about it that no one likes admitting they're wrong. I certainly don't. <laughs> the process that happens between realizing you messed up and saying, I'm sorry, or will you forgive me, is not fun. I don't care how old you are, how you're going to vote in November, how much money you make. Saying I'm sorry and realizing you're wrong is often a painful process. Recognizing your fault and engaging in the process of forgiveness is not only, not only humbling, but sometimes downright painful. Anyone with me on that? Okay. Good. I ran across this quote, and it made me laugh. It says, sometimes the first step to forgiveness is understanding the other person is a complete idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the idiot is all of us, right? It's you and it's me. We're the ones who need forgiveness. So many times I've said something judgmental or lacked compassion, been unsupportive, overindulged, been self-centered. I mean, the list goes on and on. My parents and my husband attend this church, and they'd love to talk to you about specific examples afterwards. You know, we live in a world where bitterness and resentment are second nature. We want justice to be served and the person who was wrong to be held accountable as soon as possible. Forgiveness is countercultural. If you don't believe me, maybe some of you can identify with this meme. It says, to err is human, to forgive is against company policy. And I know, I know for a fact that some of you are here this morning working in, in environments just like that, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You might think that forgiveness sounds nice in the Bible, but that's not how the real world operates. And you'd be right, forgiveness is scarce. And for the past several weeks, we've been unpacking the parables of Jesus through our our series, Once Upon a Time, Small Story, Big Idea. And I just wanted to take a moment to remind you how important the parables are to God. You see, one-third of the words that Jesus uh, spoke and are recorded in our Bibles are parables. These stories reveal the nature and the heart of God. It shows us who Jesus is and what he values. And that's why we've been taking a look at them for the past several weeks. So the parable that I chose this morning is going to simultaneously wreck and inspire you, if you're anything like me. So let's turn to Matthew 18. We're going to read together the story of the unforgiving servant. I'm reading in the ESV version, verse 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then Jesus starts to tell a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is equivalent to roughly $7 billion into today's currency. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is roughly $11,000. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had happened. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness. It's the cornerstone of our faith and yet so very difficult to practice at times. And while every Christ follower is cognitively aware that Jesus died on the cross for our sins for forgiveness, we sometimes struggle, like the servant in this story, to do unto others. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Our big story in the midst of a little idea is that forgiveness is meant to be passed on, not hoarded. Forgiveness is meant to be shared to the next person and the next person and the next person, not kept unto ourselves. It is a free gift. I want to take a moment, though, and just maybe relieve some of you who are here this morning and thinking, Lydia, you do not understand what has been done to me. I have gone through abuse. I've gone through lies and cheats and deceit. You just don't understand. It's not that simple. And I want to just say that forgiveness is not condoning behavior. Forgiveness is not saying what you did is okay, no worries, there's no consequences for your actions. But what forgiveness is is saying, I want to continue into relationship, I love you, God cares about you, even if you hurt me. I want to take steps towards forgiveness, that there's trust that will need to be rebuilt in many of our situations, and there are real consequences. But forgiveness is not condoning behavior. So the primary means of obtaining forgiveness in the Old Testament is through what was known as the sacrificial system, which God put in place when he brought his people out of Egypt. And this system of sacrificing animals, which were often lambs and goats, was a symbol of the contrast between the sinful human condition and the holiness and purity of God. This method of sacrificing animals had to be repeated over and over and over and over again for everything, every sin that could be committed. You had to go through a process of sacrifices in order to be granted pardon. It would have been exhausting. You never would have been able to keep up. Forgiveness was constantly sought. 
Now, fortunately, we can fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene and he becomes the perfect and final sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, (laughs) for which God's forgiveness is given to everyone for eternity if they want it. And just as the master in this parable took pity on his servant, he canceled the debt and let him go. So God did for us with death on the cross, and he expects us to do for others. There are a lot of reasons to forgive. I, could do, I think we could do a whole series on forgiveness, truly, but uh, this morning we just want to highlight three of the reasons uh, that we should forgive. The first reason we must forgive is, we, is because we have been forgiven. Verse 27 in the parable says, And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Oftentimes, it can be easy to forget that there was a lot of suffering and pain and eventually death in order for Jesus to forgive us. What Jesus did was painful and came at an incredibly high cost. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You and I, we are responsible for making sure that the incredible miracle of being rescued from darkness does not end with us. C.S. Lewis, who's a really famous Christian author and thinker, once said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And many of you are probably familiar with the passage in Matthew 6 where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, Our Father who art in heaven, and hallowed be thy name. And it continues on. And near the end he says, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The Lord teaches us that that is the way to pray. That is the way to live our lives. And we so clearly see throughout other parts of scripture, and particularly in the verses that we read this morning, that Jesus wants you and I, he wants his servants, those who call themselves followers of Christ, to multiply the mercy we have been shown. God is not interested in isolated experiences. God wants everything good and beautiful to be a domino effect. That's why he sent his son. When a person truly grasps in their heart how they've been freely forgiven, it compels, it should compel that person to freely forgive others, even if it's at great cost to them. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that one of the primary implications of someone believing the gospel, the way that Paul says we can tell if someone is truly a disciple of Christ, if they've been changed, is if they become a forgiving person. Yet unforgiveness I've I've seen and I've been a part of is often one of the most spiritually crippling diseases that exists in our church today. And it resides within many of our hearts, churches all over the nation, all over the world. It's something we struggle with so much. And I'm convinced that unforgiveness is one of the most deadly threats to not only our personal spiritual formation, but to the unity of our church family and to the witness to the city God's placed us in. 
Grace, mercy, forgiveness is an area where God means for us to shine brightly. We're to live differently than other people in regard to this. I think of a woman named Nadine Collier who last, just last year in 2015 became nationally famous for her response to the Charleston shooter who came in and killed her mother and eight other people in a Bible study in a church. And the three words that she said to the Charleston shooter were, I forgive you. She became famous all over for quite some time, and people were trying to understand, comprehend how you could forgive the person who murdered your mother. The second reason we should forgive is that people are watching. And some of you might think that that's a negative thing, but I really want to look at that as a positive thing, that people are watching us. People are looking at me, and they're looking at you, and they you know, say, oh, I go to Evergreen, or oh, you know, I go to church on Christmas and Easter, whatever, whatever your, your faith journey looks like, and they're looking at you, and they're, and they're watching, and they're wanting to understand how you live your life, and the actions mean so much more than words, as we all know. But in the story this morning, you can see this happen. It says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had happened. So they have seen this man who has just forgiven a $7 billion debt go and not forgive someone who owes him $11,000. And they're greatly distraught. And so they go and they tell other people about this. And just like that, people are watching us. They're looking to see if we actually live out what we say we believe, and not only are they watching, but they are sharing and they are talking about it with their coworkers and their neighbors and their friends and their family, just as the men in this story did. Our family and neighbors and kids as teachers are not going to just see our actions, but they're going to talk about them. Are we going to be found, am I going to be found as a forgiver, or are we going to be seen as stubborn and prideful? And then the last and probably most obvious reason we must forgive is that Jesus commands us to. As we saw at the beginning of today's parable, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive these losers? Like, how many times? They've, you know, I know I'm going to get hurt, and I've been hurt multiple times by the same person. How many times? And Jesus essentially responds, Peter, an extravagant number. He doesn't literally mean 77 times. He's not, you know, don't take out a post-it note and keep track. But what he's saying is, you need to forgive Peter as many times as you've been offended. Forgiveness begins as a choice, not a feeling, Peter. Jesus showed us this by his action on the cross when he goes and he's crucified and in the midst of that suffering and that pain, not after when everything is better and he's resurrected, as they've pierced his side and he has few breaths left, he says, forgive them. Forgive them, God, for they know not what they do. He made a deliberate decision. I don't think he really felt like it, at least the human side of him, right? The human side of Jesus did not feel like forgiving them. But he made a conscious decision. Just the other day, I got into a tiff with my husband and, you know, my attitude was crummy as, I'm sure all of you who are married and live with someone 24-7 can attest to we're not always on our best behavior. And I, yeah, I had a bad attitude and I asked my husband for forgiveness. But before I asked for forgiveness, I gently reminded him that Jesus says to forgive at least 77 times. (laughs) 
And he wittingly and humorously responded, oh, Lid, you're way past 77. (laughs) And that's the truth, right? That's the truth for all of us. God, we need you to forgive us an infinite number of times. There was a story uh, back in 2005 that was published in the Oregonian about a girl named Lindsay, and she's a, a Portland girl, local girl. And she grew up with a very broken childhood. She ha- had the kind of childhood that people would say, oh, that kid's going to need counseling when they get older. They're going to need professional help. And she did. As she got older, she sought uh, some, some help and started to work through her pain. But by the age of 28, she realized that she was still very stuck, that there was still a lot of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. And so she started to talk to her counselor more about these emotions. And she said, I just feel like I'm sitting in a great big chair of anger. And in a moment of pure genius, I think, her counselor had this idea. She said, Lindsay, I want you to go out and I want you to buy a chair And I want you to carry it around with you everywhere for a week as a symbol of the bitterness and anger and unforgiveness that you have in your heart. I want you to come back next week and I want you to report to me your experience of what that's like. I want you to take it to the bathroom, put it next to your bed, in the grocery line, to work. And she thought for sure that Lindsay was going to reject that, right? Like there's no way. But she said, okay. She said, I'll try it. What do I have to lose? So on her way back from uh, the counseling session, she stopped by Goodwill and picked up a folding, a metal folding chair, you know, a little more convenient to carry around with you than some of these other chairs might be. And when she got home, she decided to write in big letters, anger, across her chair. And then all of a sudden, just this creative juices started flowing, and she started to write down specific things that she was angry about. And before she knows it, she's got, you know, a chair covered full of words and realizes, oh my gosh, I have to go out with this thing tomorrow. People are going to think I'm crazy. Well, she did it. She did it for one, for one week and kept going and kept going the next day and the next day and went back to her counselor. And uh, this is what she was reported saying. She said, just like the chair, I realize my anger is embarrassing. It's shameful. It's big. It's loud. It gets in my way. It's heavy. It takes up space. It's a burden. It's ugly and in your face. It's time-consuming. It takes strength. It hurts when it bumps into me. I hurt other people without knowing. It gets in people's way. It's distracting. And actually, when this article was published, Lindsay was still carrying the chair around with her. She decided to extend her experiment longer than a week. She was going through this process of discovering what letting go and forgiving might really look like. And many of us this morning can relate to Lindsay, I think. Things that have happened years ago or maybe last week or last month haunt us. Abandonment by a parent, drug addiction, poor financial choices, a loved one killed by a drunk driver, a faith community rejecting us. Kids that have rebelled, gossip being spread, a failed work assignment. And while time may have passed, this clunky metal chair of unforgiveness seems to be ever-present. And so I went and I bought my own chair. 
I couldn't find one at two Goodwill, so I had to go buy a new one. But. <laughs> and uh, I will say that I was with my husband when we bought this chair in Fred Meyer, and I'm really stubborn. Sometimes I'm like, I don't need a car, and I kind of forgot I was going to pick up a chair. And <laughs> I grabbed the chair, and I was like, oh, I'll just carry this around. And my husband was kind of embarrassed, and he's like, why can I just go get you a car? You don't need to carry that around. People are looking at you because I'm just walking through Fred Meyer picking up bananas and yogurt. And, uh, and so I can just say that girl was brave because just for the 15 minutes in Fred Meyer that I had to walk around with a chair, I felt awkward. <laughs> and you can see that I've wrote some of my own words on this chair. And the first word that I want to share with you is, is church. This is an area in my life where God, uh, I've had to ask God for forgiveness of other people. Uh, I've shared in some of my other sermons just a little bit of my experience as a, as a young woman in the church, but more than that, just the way I've been treated and maybe unsupported or not really seen, uh, looked over, judged. The church is made up of people, and we're really messy and not very nice sometimes. <laughs> So that, is, that was an area that God has redeemed for me and used me to be part of the solution of some of the problems that I've seen in the big C church. And then some of these other words, friends and skinny or skinny friends. <laughs> no, so let me share with you my friend's story first. So um, when I was in college, I was really looking forward to going off because I grew up mostly with a lot of guy friends. I really kind of hung out with the guys, and that was great and all, but I really wanted some really good girlfriends, like the kind that you stay up and sleepovers, and you do just fun, girly things, and I wanted my BFF, right? Like, I wanted to, I wanted to have that relationship, and so when I went off to college, I met these two gals on my floor, and they were wonderful and awesome, and we became this trio. We were like the three musketeers, completely inseparable, and I loved it. I felt so like I belonged and part of something. I thought we would be together forever and we would uh, go to each other's weddings and, you know, our kids' births and birthday parties and all of that. And then, frankly, I got pushed out and it became a trio and it became a twosome. And I was really hurt. I was, I was devastated. And I had to work through my forgiveness of those, of those two girls. And I've had to work through my trust of other people, men and women, um, after being in a relationship that was vulnerable like that. And then the other word which she saw in here was skinny. And that, was more, that has been more of a journey of self-forgiveness and self-acceptance. Um, and I'm sure many of you this morning can relate to the body image that we are supposed to fulfill, that we are supposed to be. And uh, I came out of the womb a chunky monkey. And I, I had a lot of awkward stages. Like, and I just, ha I've had to work really hard. And I, if I don't, I feel like I'll blink and I'll put on 50 pounds. So I, I have this, like, I've had this fear and this acceptance that I've had to go through with myself and how I'm made and what's healthy for me and what beautiful is to me. And what beautiful is to my husband and beautiful is to God. And while, it, while I joke then, I say, you know, my skinny friends or whatever, right? Like some of them, I know we all have them, don't really have to work, right? Some of them are like, I just have an amazing metabolism. And you're like, that's been something that I've had to work through, that I've had to not be jealous of, that I'd have to not be envious of and accept who I am and how God's made me and love me. 
So there's all sorts of areas that God works through in our chair of anger and the places that we sit. And I'd be curious to hear what some of your words might be that you would sit in today. Forgiveness might be one of the hardest things to do. Self-forgiveness, as I talked about, has been actually harder for me than forgiving other people, forgiving myself. It's painful and it's beautiful. It's simple and yet incredibly complex. But if there's one thing I have discovered in my own experiences and hurts, I want to be a person of extravagant forgiveness. I want to be known as a woman of extravagant forgiveness. Forgiveness for others and for myself. No matter what anyone has done to you, you can choose forgiveness. Whether you did something wrong or you had something wrong done to you, freedom and wholeness is possible. And I can say that because of who Jesus is and what he's done. It is possible. It is within reach. So I wanted to give you a few practical ways this morning to apply this message. What does it look like to be a forgiving person? Well, the first thing I want to share are three steps toward forgiveness. So if you, which we all have, but maybe you have something on your mind and heart this morning, an area where you've hurt someone, you've said something cruel or harmful or out of turn, Maybe there was some sort of horrible accident that happened, but you were involved and it hurt someone. The first step is to face the injured. Do whatever you can to have a one-on-one conversation with the person that you have offended, that you have hurt. Texts don't cut it. One-on-one, as much as it is safe for you and possible. There's a great story by Ernest Hemingway called Capital of the World. And in this story, he tells a tale of a Spanish father who has gotten into an argument with his son, and his son ran off. They had a horrible fight, and he hasn't been able to find him since. And so he wants so badly to reconcile with his son that the next day he goes and he takes out an advertisement in the local newspaper. And he writes, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. And the next day, he shows up at the Hotel Montana and is shocked to see over 800 young men named Paco (laughs) waiting for the embrace of forgiveness from their father. Do whatever you can, go to whatever lengths you can to have that conversation one-on-one, eye-to-eye with the person that you have hurt. The second thing that you do once you're sitting down with that person is own your wrong. And that sounds easy, but let me tell you, it can be very difficult because when you own your wrong, you should be saying, I'm sorry, with no excuses and no blame. That's harder said than done. Does that make sense? Harder done than said? Easier. Thank you. You know where I'm going. (laughs) Don't get defensive. That's so easy to do when you're sitting down and you're wanting to apologize for something that happened and they might respond back and you want, your wall goes up. You want to protect yourself and I didn't mean to or I I didn't mean it this way and you get defensive. But own your wrong. Own your part 100%. 
make it a sincere apology. I've done it and I've been in conversations where there's I'm sorry followed up by but, 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 but. And I feel like I walk out and I was like, was that really an apology? <laughs> right? I mean, we've done it and we've received it. So let's do our best to own our wrong. And then the third thing is ask for release. Will you forgive me? And be prepared. Sometimes when you sit down and you have this conversation, this person may very well be in shock <laughs> that you've asked, you've, you've said, I'm sorry, and now you're asking for forgiveness. Or whatever the grievance may be, they may just need time to process and pray and respond back to you later. I'm just trying to be really practical here because I've been in conversations sometimes where someone just says, you know, I really, I need to think and pray about this and, and I would love to talk to you about this in a, in a little while after I've really gone to the Lord with this and processed through this because I want my I forgive you to be, I want it to be done. Now, if you're here this morning and you're the victim, you're the one who's been injured, there are some, there's some overlap here because I just talked about what it means if you have injured someone else. And what that really looks like is you should also, if you can, if it's safe and it's possible, let the person know that they've hurt you. I have been in many conversations and and experiences where the person maybe didn't even know that they had hurt me, that I had internalized something they said, something they did with their body language. They just didn't know. So do whatever you can as well if you're the victim to meet with that person and Continue to pray for release. If you're not able to meet with that individual and have some sort of closure, continue to pray to God. You can forgive them even if you don't have a conversation with them. God is able to do that and pray for release. But oftentimes some of us here have some really big, big things that we need to work through the forgiveness for, and it's not always just as simple as praying and I forgive you. So come talk to a pastor on staff here at Evergreen. We'd love to walk you through that process. We have amazing counselors that we can refer you to. Journaling is a great way to process through areas where you need to forgive. So I'm not trying to simplify it so much to say that some of you have some really, really big stuff, and it's not just as simple as, you know, a little fight with your your spouse. I recognize that, and Jesus knows that, and there are ways to move towards forgiveness in every situation. So I want to share a final story with you. After the past few weeks, I'm sure many of you have heard this name, if not seen his face. It's the Dallas chief of police, David Brown. And David Brown grew up in a poor, predominantly black neighborhood in Dallas during a time in our country when the police department in Dallas was known for a lot of brutal incidents. So when he became chief in 2010, he implemented a series of reforms that have completely transformed that department. As a result of his leadership, complaints of excessive force dropped 80% in the last six years. But what you might not know is that David Brown, in 2010, after he was sworn into office as chief of police, was close to Father's Day, and on Father's Day, his own son shot and killed a police officer. And then... Another police officer came and shot and killed his son 12 times. And as if watching your son and your colleague murder each other wasn't tragic enough, we know that just over five weeks ago, David Brown lost five of his troops to a black man who came into a rally in Dallas. 
And today, this courageous man finds himself at odds between two worlds, his black family and his police family. And now, I really believe there is just cause for heartbreak and bitterness to be this man's mantra. He has experienced things that many of us can't even fathom. But what's far more astounding is the way this man has responded to evil. In 2010, or sorry, just last week after the death of one of of five of his colleagues, Brown stood up and he gave a moving eulogy. And he said these words, There is nothing too difficult for God. Trust him with all your might. And back in 2010, shortly after the deadly shootings of his son and a police officer, Chief Brown approached the families his son had murdered, asking for forgiveness. And with tears in his eyes, sat down in front of them and said, this was not how our son was raised. I am so sorry. Forgiveness is meant to be passed on not hoarded. I want to close a little differently than we normally do here at Evergreen. Every church has their own spoken or unspoken ways that they do a worship service, and that's called liturgy. And our normal liturgy is that we would close and I would, um, we would have a prayer where we close our eyes and I lead us in that. Uh, But this morning, I wanted to do something a little different. It's called a call and response liturgy. And this is something that many of our brothers and sisters and friends in other denominations are probably doing this morning. It's a little more traditional approach. Uh, If you come from a Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic Presbyterian background, this will bring back memories for you. But the reason that I wanted to do this is this is a great opportunity for all of us as one community to proclaim as one body that we are committed to the work of forgiveness, not just individually, but as a unit. So what I'm going to do is there's going to be some words up on the screen. I'm going to read them, and then you'll see where it says all. We're all going to jump in together and read that. Before we start, though, I wanted to just take a moment, because this isn't our normal liturgy, uh, to say that if you are here this morning and you have never experienced the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer you, you've never walked into a relationship with Jesus, please say this prayer with us this morning. And then on the connection card that's in the seat pocket in front of you, there is a place where you can mark that you have said yes to Jesus for the first time, and we want to follow up with you. We want to give you some resources. Um, But I just want to take a moment to, to say that you are welcome at this table as we close in prayer together. So um, I'm going to start us off. God... We are your people, humans made in your image, yet your world is full of pain, pain brought by humans made in your image. We mourn, we weep, we ask your forgiveness. What are we to do with these pieces of ourselves? Hatred, exclusion, violence, dissent. We mourn, we weep, we ask your forgiveness. The magnitude of our brokenness overwhelms us. We cannot see clearly how to move forward. We mourn, we weep, we ask your forgiveness. Thankfully, our brokenness is not the end of the story. 
we confess that you are a redeeming God. You sent your son to heal our world and snatch it from the clutches of the evil one. Heal, restore, bring new life. We offer the hurts of our families, friends, community, and churches. Cloudy, confusing, difficult. Heal, restore, bring new life. We lift to you, God, the wounds of our world, bleeding, crying, in need of your love. Heal, restore, bring new life. And all of us together on the last slide. Lord, equip us for the work of forgiveness. May we be your hands, your feet, and your heart for a broken world. Amen.